Second Samuel 7:12. Our memory verse for this week, by the way, is when the time comes for you to die, I will raise up your descendant, one of your own sons, to succeed to su- succeed you. 
and I will establish his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come together this morning to worship you. And Lord, we are just joyful that we can do that. Father, I pray this morning that we uh, have our hearts and our minds focused on you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, Mark, can you turn me down just a little bit? I'm reverberating up here. <laughs> well, it's good to see everybody this morning. How you doing? Good. It's just great to be together. I hope that you're glad to worship together this morning, that none of you have a drug problem and got drugged to church today, that we're all here because we want to worship the Lord together. One of the things we're asking you this morning, please make sure you fill out your connection card. And if you're watching us online, we ask that you do the same thing. And before we continue, well, let's just go to the next song. What do you think? <laughs> I can hear some introverts. Yes, please, please. Take three. Yeah, yeah. God will put me somewhere. So, um, take three minutes and go around and say hello to someone. Jeannie. 
we have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves.
Good to see everybody today. We are in week eight of our Core 52 series, and this year what we're doing is we're examining 52 essential uh, passages of Scripture that will give you the most bang for your buck. If you've ever been to some of the big amusement parks like Disney, or, or if you've gone to uh, different tourist attractions, like I know when we were in, when we went to uh, Italy, we went to the Vatican, and um, and some of these in the in the Colosseum, the lines were a mile long literally but you could buy this thing that you could avoid the lines and it was well worth it or if you go to i think disney they have this fat this what is it called a fast pass or something where you skip the lines and you can just butt in front of everybody man it's just great well these 52 verses are kind of you butting in line to learn scripture and so that's what we've been doing that's what we're doing this year it's kind of a fast pass to biblical knowledge and so we're glad that you're with us for this today a couple weeks ago, I explained the concept when I preached last about the type and the anti-type in Scripture. A type was a, basically a prophetic, it was a foreshadowing of something that was going to come later in the New Testament. We learned that Moses, when we looked at Jesus and Moses, that Moses was the type and Jesus was the anti-type. In other words, Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that Moses did. And as we've been going through Core 52, I hope that you're kind of following along what we're doing because there's a lot of bad theology that takes place because people don't understand how things tie together. And so it's vital that we understand even to the, something as simple as the covenant with Abraham, how it affects us today and how we are a part of that covenant. Because a lot of people still think, well, God's going to come set up a, a kingdom in Jerusalem. He's going to reign there physically from Jerusalem. But when you understand what it means to be a child of Abraham now, you understand that the Jewish people have to get to Jesus the same way everybody else does. So just little things like that. But in our passage today, we're going to focus on the same concept, 
but we're going to be looking at Jesus and David. Now, you need to remember this, that Abraham was considered the father of the nation. Moses was considered the founder of the nation. However, David was considered the leader of the nation. Throughout Jewish history, when they would look back at their country and they would long for better days, they would go back to David. Those were the better days. The kingdom was strong. David was a good leader. He took the nation to heights unknown at that, for that nation probably ever since. Now, when Solomon comes onto the picture, one of the things that you find is that God blessed Solomon, but there's no Solomon without David. And by the way, Solomon came through David's sin, just as a, just as a thought. Jerry shared with you last week this whole we want a king other than God business, uh, other than God business where the people, God was leading them, but the people really liked to see those kings going into battle or sitting at the back lines of the battle on their bright shining horses, and it just looked good. They wanted that look, and, and so God said to Nathan, told Sam, he says, you know what, give them what they want. So Saul was actually the people's choice because he was tall and he had great hair. <laughs> Whereas David... When we get to David, David is God's choice. David was a man after God's own heart. 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 5 sums up the reign of David in this manner. It's very generous, by the way. It says, <clears throat> he, speaking of God, did this because David had done what he approved and had not disregarded any of his commands his entire lifetime. But I like the exception, except for that little thing involving Uriah the Hittite. Now, remember, Uriah was Bathsheba's husband, and when he had Bathsheba over at the house when he shouldn't have, he got her praise. She came back and said, hey, I got a gift for you. And David's panicking, and, and so he's like, he gets his leaders together and say, send Uriah to the front lines and then withdraw and let him die. So that's a pretty big exception, <laughs> wouldn't you think? But I just, I'm amazed at how 1 Kings 15.5 uh, sums up David's life. But David became the standard by which other kings of Israel were judged. And when people were thinking, you know, all of us have a point in life where we think it was the good old days. You know, for some it was the 50s. You know, for some it was, you know, the 80s music or whatever. Some it might have been during a, a certain presidential's, a president's uh, time in office. But we all have that. Well, for Israel, it was definitely David. Now, 20 times, about 20 times in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and Chronicles, excuse me, in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, the descendants of David... Uh, who sat on the throne were compared to David. In other words, they didn't stand on their own. Everybody was comparing all his descendants to David. When you read statements like in 2 Kings 18.3 about King Hezekiah, it says, God said, he did right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father David had done. Or in 2 Kings 16.2 where it said, when it talks about King Ahaz, unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of, of the Lord his God. <clears throat> So throughout their history, everybody was compared to David. David became a running thread through the Old Testament and through the New Testament. So this is why David's important to us. And there is a very good reason for David being mentioned so much in Scripture. Not just because he was Israel's greatest king, but as we saw with Moses, he was a type of prophetic foreshadowing of Jesus. And Jesus ultimately would fulfill that. That takes us to the context of 2 Samuel uh, verse uh, chapter 7. In the beginning of chapter 7, what you have here is David is well established as king. He had built a palace. And one day he's kind of pondering this and he says, you know, I'm in this nice palace of cedar. I bet it smelled good too, by the way, <clears throat> um, because the people didn't. But I'm in this nice palace 
and God's over here in a tent. And so he's sharing this with the prophet Nathan, and Nathan first says, well, you know what? God is with you, so do what's on your heart. But then God kind of knocks on Nathan's door and says, ah, you better change that story. And he gave him what he gives him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It goes to God, and then it goes to David. And and, and the, the, the gist of it is, David, you're not building my temple. You're a man of blood. And that's where verse seven comes, uh, verse twelve comes in, and we'll talk about that. So, what I hope you see today is this: that God makes a promise. When He makes a promise, even when it looks like that promise cannot be fulfilled, and we'll see why the one to Abraham and even to David looks like it's dead in the water. Whenever it looks like God can't can't fulfill it, God is faithful. We need to understand this concept because we live this truth today. So many times we're faced with situations where we know God's word, we know God's promises, but we're faced with something that looks like there is zero chance that this can happen. There is no way God can do this. There's no way God can take this situation and and do something good with it, like we have in Romans 8.30, where all things work together for the good of those who love God and are are called by God and love him. And you look at this situation before you, there's no way that'll work. But see, if you don't understand that when God makes a promise, God keeps a promise, even when you don't think he can, it'll lead you down a bad path. So we need to understand that. So this morning, let's begin. We're going to be in in 2 Samuel chapter 7, excuse me, verses 12 through 16. And it tells us this. And this is, uh, excuse me, God talking to Nathan. And then, of course, Nathan shares this with David. God tells Nathan, say, tell this to David, when the time comes for you to die, I will raise up your descendant, one of your own sons, to succeed you, succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will make his dynasty permanent. I will become his father, he will become my son. When he sins, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the wounds inflicted by human beings. But my loyal love will not be removed from him, as I removed it from Saul, whom I remove, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will stand before me permanently. Your dynasty will be permanent. <clears throat> now, I want you to f- listen to those words and think about those words, and then as we look at the history of the nation of Israel a little bit, you'll understand where I'm coming from. So the first thing we see, excuse me, is this a promise made? In Second Samuel, as I said, begins with God with David conversing about Nathan, and he's telling Nathan, "I really want to build God a temple. I want to build him a nice house." And Nathan says, "Hey, do it. God's with you." And then, as I said later in the evening, God gives Nathan a message and says, "This is what you really need to tell David." And he gives Nathan this message concerning God's desire for David. Now, God makes a covenant with David here. He is making a promise to him. And in the grand narrative of God's interaction with humanity, uh, the promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12 stands as a pivotal moment. This is why this is included in our core 52, marking not just a covenant with a king, but laying the foundation for the coming Messiah. So this is really foundational to what was going to happen through Jesus. This promise is made begins in verse 12, And goes through verse 16. Now, when David hears this from Samuel, I'm sure he's like, oh man, I really want to build the temple. But he takes it as God talking about Solomon. 
So what David does through the rest of his life is he basically he does all the prep work for the for the for the temple. He gets all the materials, he gets everything together, he's got the blueprints, and then when he dies, of course, it goes over to Solomon. Now this promise in a way was immediately applicable to Solomon, David's son, because he would build this temple. He would build this house for God's name. But it transcends the immediate and the tangible, pointing to something bigger, eventually pointing to Jesus. Well, this covenant with David is not merely about a a secession, but establishing a kingdom that would have no end. And this is important for us to understand this, because he's telling David, your kingdom, this kingdom I'm talking, this covenant I'm making with you, will never end. It speaks of God's sovereignty and God's ultimate plan for the redemption of people. Well, when we look at David, we see a man that was after, after God's own heart. A king who, despite his flaws, was used by God in in mighty ways. And I've told you this before. When I came to Christ, David was actually one of my most encouraging characters in Scripture because I saw what David had done. And God still used. I mean, listen, when you get somebody else's wife pregnant or get somebody pregnant other than your wife, and then you, on top of that, try to hide it and try to send her husband to, to be, basically, David killed him, that's pretty bad, isn't it? Y'all agree with me on that? Is that a bad thing? It's a bad thing. But yet God says, speaking of David, there's a man after my own heart. Now, that act wasn't after God's own heart. But when David was confronted, he repented, he paid the price, and he kept going. So in other words, David wasn't perfect. And I always had a picture of church people as being perfect. Man, you got to be perfect. Because I thought everybody in there else else was perfect. Well, we know that's not true. But that was my perception. But this covenant establishes a special relationship between God and David's lineage. There's that special relationship. We can't blame David for thinking about his own sons, his own grandsons, and his great-grandsons. In other words, David's not really, he doesn't have a perception at this point that he's talking about something just amazing. Because every king or emperor thinks that their line is going to last forever. You know, this is why I know with, uh, with Napoleon, you know, there was a lot of pressure on him and Josephine to have a, child, have a boy. And when they couldn't, the pressure was on him to divorce her and bring another woman into his life. Because, hey, he's emperor, so his line's got to keep going forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And we see this. So when David hears this, he's, it's not unusual for him to think, well, yeah, he's talking about my family. Well, he kind of is, but not in the way David thinks. Well, prophecies often work in two levels at once there's an immediate reference and there's an ultimate reference it's like when you go visit a famous place or go to a big event and take a picture there's two things in the picture the two things that you want in the picture i know we used to travel with our friend tasha and when she used to travel around she would go to when she'd cross the state line she'd have everybody get out of the car it's really annoying at times by the way and we'd all have to stand in front of the sign that says welcome to whatever state you're in and take a picture. So in that picture, you had two things. You had us, and you had what state you're in. And so, or if you go to the Grand Canyon, or if you go to the ocean, or whatever, or a concert, you know, you're taking this picture, you've got yourself and the, and what was, and, and the, the event. Now, what is the picture about? Is it about you, or is it about the event? Well, the answer is it's about both. Well, prophecy can be like a picture. The subject's in the foreground, 
And in the foreground here is Solomon. But there's a much bigger thing in the background, and that's Jesus. God simply cannot be talking about Solomon or an earthly throne in Jerusalem here. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. In verse 13, God tells David he will make David's dynasty permanent. And the same thing's repeated in verse 16. <clears throat> permanent means permanent, right? It means forever. God said there's no end to it. It would be a long, it would be long before the kingdom. It wouldn't be long before the kingdom, though, was in trouble. During David's reign, it was under control. Solomon's reign, it was under control. Solomon became king after David around 970 uh, B.C., and he reigned for 40 years. But then after Solomon's death, when his son Rehoboam took over, um, the kingdom divided because Rehoboam, just, to, just real briefly, <clears throat> Solomon attacks the heck out of people to do what he was called to do. And um, the people wanted relief, and so... Dave, or excuse me, Solomon's uh, entourage went to Rehoboam and said, hey, give people a break. Basically, give them a tax break. Uh, first thing of trickle-down economics. <laughs> give them a tax break. But then his young friends, you know, the young ones who know everything, <clears throat> uh, said, don't do it, man. And Solomon, or excuse me, Rehoboam just dropped the hammer on the people. And they said, fine, we're not going to do this. So what happened is the kingdom divided. Only two tribes were left in Judah, Judah and the tiny tribe of Benjamin. That little section, that southern kingdom, as we call it, was under the control of David's royal line. Every king, all, all 19 of them, were from the line of David. The 10 northern tribes, which were larger, um, they, um, they, they weren't of the line of David. Uh, this split happened in 931 B.C. The northern kingdom began with Rehoboam's political opponent, Jeroboam. We used to call them the Boam brothers in college, but they weren't related. <laughs> uh, the northern kingdom had 19 kings before the Assyrians ended them in 722 B.C. And by the way, surprise, all 19 kings were bad. They were evil. Now, the southern kingdom also had 19 kings, and all of them came from David. Some were good, some were bad. <clears throat> the Babylonians ended the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. Now, God had just promised David in 970-ish, you know, 972 roughly, hey, your kingdom's going to last forever. Your dynasty's going to reign forever. Well, 931, it's split. So you go from 12 to 2. In 722, um, the, the northern kingdom was over. So there's no hope for them coming back. And then here we are in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians basically ended the southern kingdom. So it sounds like God made a promise that isn't going to work. From David's line, there were 20 kings, including Solomon. After 586, there was never another king. What had happened after the Babylonian exile, there was a political shift, and the nation was basically ruled, the political structure was it was ruled more by religious leaders and, and um, community leaders rather than a monarch. So nobody sat on David's throne ever again. But God said... Your throne's going to last forever. Huh. For, a <laughs> For a throne to last forever, it requires a forever king. Solomon and David's grandsons don't cut it. After David, 20 of his descendants sat on the throne, <clears throat> each in turn. Now, 20 descendants is a long time. 
It's a long time. From basically 970 to, to 586, that's a pretty good long period of time. Nobody from 970 was alive in 586, obviously. But see, that is not forever, is it? And the kingdom ended. The picture in the background is something different. It's something bigger. It's something better. Remember that a forever throne <clears throat> requires a forever king. When we hit 586, it appears that God had lost, that his promise was not kept. That moves us to our second thought. <clears throat> a promise kept. <laughs> the prophet Isaiah wrote the following in Isaiah 11.10. And this was before everything ended. He said, Now at the time, a root of Jesse will stand like a signal flag for the nations. Nations will look at him for guidance, and his residence will be majestic. Now Jesse, as you know, was the, son, was the father of David. He is comparing David, David's line to those of a plant that shoots out runners from underground. Even though you can't see the plant, because it's, it's, it's no longer above ground, it's still there. And then one day it just pops up. I just noticed in my yard. <clears throat> my yards look great until the last few days. And stupid weeds are popping up again. We're going to get them, though. We won't lose. Nothing a little money can't fix. But anyway, even though the royal family line has disappeared from view, it will pop up again. And when it does, he will draw all the nations to a glorious kingdom, something much bigger than somebody sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. All the prophets that God sent after the exile, Amos, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, began speaking about God's restoring and rebuilding David's kingdom. But the kingdom they talked about was much bigger and much better. In Amos chapter 9 and verse 11, in that day I will rebuild the collapsing hut of David, I will seal its gasp, gaps, report, repair its ruins, restore it to what it was um, like in the days gone by. So anytime I can get an Amos reference in a, in a, in a sermon, that's a good thing. So I'm like, who's Amos? He's in the Old Testament. Anyway, Jeremiah 23, 5. I, the Lord, promise that in a, that in a new time will certainly come when I raise up for them a righteous branch, a descendant of David. He will rule over them with wisdom and understanding and will do what is just and right in the land. <clears throat> Ezekiel. <clears throat> they will live in the land I, give the, I gave to my servant Jacob in which your fathers lived. They will, they will live in it and they and their children and their grandchildren forever. David, my servant, will be prince over them forever. See, these promises... <clears throat> when the nation was destroyed and God sends these prophets after, after the Babylonian exile, these promises just sound stupid. They just do. If you're, if you're Jewish people, you're like, our nation's over. It's done. How's this going to work? And it just seems like <clears throat> one of those things that God makes these promises, but it just looks impossible. And see, you have those in your life too. This is where the, the application for life comes in. God has made you promises. And there's times where those promises just look ridiculous, honestly. Because your situation looks so dry and so desperate that you think there's no way that God can fulfill that. It just isn't going to happen. 
all looks lost. And the prophets, you know, when they're saying these things, if I'm in that time frame, I'm like, well, how's that going to work? You know? But one thing you need to know about God, something you can take to the bank is this. When God makes a promise, God keeps his promise. Always. 100% of the time. Remember when uh, Isaac was about ready to get the knife in the chest? You know, his father's like, you know what, even if that knife goes in the chest, God said that I'm going to have all these descendants. He'll raise him from the dead. That's how sure he was that God was going to keep his promise. Are you that sure God's going to keep, your pro keep promises that he's made to you in your life? Because if you're not, boy, when things get tough, it's easy to, it's easy to, 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 to walk away. It's easy to feel betrayed. But if you know that when God makes you a promise, he's going to keep that promise, it changes your life. How many times have people dumped God because they don't believe he'll keep his promises? The answer, that's often. From 586 B.C. to about 6 B.C., when Jesus was born, it looked impossible for God to keep this promise to David. Then something happened. When we get to the New Testament, it opens with the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew opens his biography of Jesus with a genealogy that shows that Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne. I encourage you to check out this week's devotional in your Core 52 devotional book because Mark Moore has some really good insights about Matthew's genealogy, which I'm not going to go into today. A promise kept. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see the thread? Abraham made a promise, was made a promise to from God. David's made the promise. Jesus is that fulfillment. This opening verse is more than just a simple family tree. It's an affirmation that the promises made both to Abraham and to David were reaching their fulfillment in Jesus. Matthew intentionally reminds us that Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne. The genealogy anchors Jesus in history, connecting him indisputably to the covenant promises of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, as the son of David, embodies the fulfillment of God's promises. He is the promised king who was going to reign without end. Now, once again, this thing looks like it was, was over at the crucifixion, doesn't it? His followers scattered. Man, they left. They were terrified. They were scared. They thought they were next. They were discouraged. I mean, think about it. If you were walking with Jesus all this time, and then you see him being crucified, and you saw what they did to him before, that'd shake your faith. And it shook the faith of those men until he appeared to James. He appeared to Thomas. He appeared to, and eventually he appeared to Paul. And all these men went from cowards to being willing to proclaim Jesus in the very streets from which he was crucified. Why? Oh, they just grew a sudden burst of strength. Nope. They knew who Jesus was. They knew he was everything that he promised. Through the, his death and his resurrection, he established a kingdom that spans all times that invites every tribe, every tongue, and every nation to be part of that inheritance. Jesus isn't just for the United States of America. Jesus is for the whole world. Jesus is for everyone. Jesus isn't just for English-speaking white people. 
Jesus is for everyone, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what your language is. And so therefore, as Christians, our job should be to try to reach everyone, not just people who look like us. By the way, this is one of the things that drew me to first Christian when I moved here. We had people that really represented the community. We had people from Korea, from Germany. We have African Americans. We, we have people of all races here, and I love that because that's what we're called to do. If they're here, we're called to reach them. David was the type. Jesus was the fulfillment of David, the anti-type. When God spoke to David about his offspring building a house in his name, it pointed beyond the physical temple that Solomon would build. Jesus is the greater son of David. He builds a different kind of house, not one made of stones, but one that, but, but one that was made with living stones, which Jesus himself was the cornerstone. Jesus, the Christ, in him, the church became the temple of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, where God's presence dwells among his people. It's no longer about a building. It's about being inside people. Jesus himself is that chief cornerstone, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, and also, I think, in 1 Corinthians. His house is a spiritual house for all believers, a place of worship, a place of fellowship, be a manifestation of God's glory on earth. Let's look at verse 16 again with a final thought. Your house, and this is where he reiterates what he said basically in verse 12, your house and your kingdom will stand before me permanently. Your dynasty will be permanent. Well, so what we have here is we have a promise that's a blessing. David's throne was established in Jerusalem. His reign was marked by the power and the favor of God. Yet his kingdom experienced turmoil, it experienced rebellion, eventual division, and eventual ending. In contrast, the reign of Christ, though it be humbly, it began humbly in a manger in Bethlehem, transcends all earthly limitations. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom, not by the force of arms, but through love, through sacrifice, and through the resurrection power. Jesus didn't put a gun to people's head and said, you're going to come into my kingdom, you're going to follow me. He led them with love. He led them by sacrificing himself. He led them by, raising the, by being raised from the dead. His rule is characterized by righteousness, justice, and peace. Unlike earthly kings, Christ's authority does not wane. He reigns supreme at the right hand of the Father, and his kingdom will never be destroyed, Daniel 7.14. The blessing of the kingdom of God is that it is eternal. Unlike the throne of David, when you were only blessed when you were in his kingdom. If you were alive during David's time, you were going to receive the blessings of that nation. But those blessings ended when David died, and eventually that nation went into captivity, and eventually that nation basically ended. David desired to establish a kingdom that would endure. God promised him an eternal dynasty. In Jesus, this eternal kingdom is realized this is why Jesus can say that I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. This resurrection, his resurrection from the dead is a pivotal event that cements his kingship forever, defeating death and offering eternal life to those who believe in him. All the man-made religions of any of those folks defeated death. 
Nope. Jesus has. And he's seated at the right hand. As believers, we are co-heirs with Christ, according to Romans 8, 17. We are to share this promise of eternal inheritance of the kingdom that will never fade away with as many people as we possibly can. The kingdom is not only about a future hope, but it's also about a present reality. Jesus rules in the hearts of his followers and endure and extends his reign through the advancement of the gospel. This is why as a church, our job is to promote the gospel, is to promote Jesus, it's about Jesus, it's about gospel, it's about nothing else. We do a lot of things that hopefully promote that, but our church isn't just about fellowship. Uh, we're, our church isn't just about honoring military. Our church isn't just about the United States of America. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus. And it's our job to spread those things. We do the other stuff also, but our purpose is Jesus. And as a church, when we lose that purpose, God will kill us off eventually because we're of no use to him. God doesn't need a country club. God needs a church. And it's our job to make sure it stays that way. Understanding that Jesus is the culmination of God's covenant with David has profound implications in our lives. It's not just, oh, okay, yeah, he culminates what David did. It means that we serve a king whose promises are sure and whose kingdom is unshakable. David's kingdom eventually was shaken. It was eventually ended. Our allegiance to Christ calls us to live in a way that reflects the values of the kingdom, like mercy, justice, humility, peace, love. But basically, the fruit of the Spirit is what we're called to do. As members of his kingdom, we are tasked with the mission to invite others into God's redemptive plan. That's what we're called to do. We are to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. We're to demonstrate the reality, its reality through our lives. In other words, people need to see it. And then we eagerly, eagerly await the day that Christ returns to establish his kingdom fully and finally. There's a lot of bad things that happen in this world that when Jesus comes back, they're over. The suffering, the pain, the tears, it's all done. Until that day, we're encouraged to hold fast to the hope set before us, knowing that in Christ, our best days are yet to come. Jesus is the true son of David, the one who fulfills the covenant that was made so many centuries before. His eternal kingdom, inaugurated through his life, his death, and his resurrection, is the ultimate kingdom. This morning, we're going to offer you that opportunity to be a part of that kingdom if you're not. Jesus, or excuse me, God made these promises way, way back when, and we get the blessing of receiving those promises. And if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as we sing our song of decision, we invite you to come forward to confess, to put your faith in God, to put your faith in Christ, to quit trying to save yourself, quit trying to make excuses of why you don't need Jesus, that you're finally saying, you know what? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then what that does is it leads you to say, you know what? I'm going to confess him as my Lord. And it's going to lead me to say, you know, I need to repent of my sins to him. And that leads me to say, you know what? I need help in life. I need help in doing this. I need to be a new creation. And we do that when we're baptized into Christ, where you're going to rise and walk in a newness of life. The baggage that you're carrying around with you stays in the water, stays with Christ, and you're a new creation. If that's what you need, we offer you that this morning. If you're an immersed believer and would like to make First Christian your home, we'd love to have you come forward this morning. 
And if you are struggling and need prayer this morning, if you would like to come up, I'd be glad to pray with you or one of our elders, Roger Wood. But if you have a decision to make, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing our song of decision, Trust and Obey. Let's go. 
as you prepare your heart and your mind for communion, listen carefully to these scriptures. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews! They mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again, and he said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now. But understand clearly that I find him not guilty. And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, Look, here is the man. And they saw him. The leading priests and temple guards began shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find no fault to make him guilty. Jewish leaders replied, By our law, he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again, and he asked them, Where are you from? Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? And Jesus said, You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you is, has the greater sin. And Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. And Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that was called the stone pavement. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, Look, here's your king. We have no king but Caesar. The leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to a place called the Place of the Skull. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side, with Jesus between them. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. To fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour vinegar wine was sitting there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. And Jesus had tasted it. He said, It is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. The place of the crucifixion 
was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. So because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in. But they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there, puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified, and they bowed their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be, be, must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day? They remembered and they rushed back to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. The story sounded like nonsense to them, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and he ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and he saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. That same day... <clears throat> Two of Jesus' followers walking to the village of Emmaus. As they talked and discussed everything that had happened, Jesus came near and joined them, but they didn't recognize him. He asked them, What are you talking about so intently? You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the things that have taken place these past few days, they said. What things? Jesus asked. Why, the things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth, of course. We had hoped that he was the coming Messiah. But now we don't know what to believe. They talked on, and after some discussion, Jesus said, But wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Well, yes, it was, they said. As they neared Emmaus, they were hungry. So they stopped, and while they were eating, Jesus revealed himself to them, and they recognized him. He was indeed alive. Take a moment, if you will. Bow your head. Close your eyes. Think on these things. God, these verses of Scripture bring back to our mind and refresh us as we think of what Jesus went through for us, how that he gave himself we might have forgiveness and live. As we thus partake of these emblems today, may our thoughts be on him 
a thanksgiving rise to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In the inside of your bulletin, we have our announcements for this week. Uh, at 4 o'clock, if you're on the missions ministry team, we have a meeting. It'll probably last about 20 minutes. We'll be in the, uh, in the uh, leadership team room. Uh, Jerry has all of his groups tonight. Roger's group is meeting this evening. Um, we have Narrow Path that's going to take place. Oh, gosh, that's Saturday. Yeah. Uh, Narrow Path taking place on Saturday. <clears throat> and make sure you please sign up. I'm going to call in a reservation um, on Monday or Tuesday, so please make sure you get signed up because we'll, we're going to try to... I'm hoping to get into Velvet Elvis. If not, I'll get another reservation in town there, but I'm pretty sure we'll get in the Velvet Elvis. Um, we have ministry sign-up sheets. Okay. There's... Uh, a, a, it's in the bulletin, so please read it and tell me you didn't... Don't tell me you didn't know, all right? But essentially, if you're already on a mission, on, on one of our teams... Like if you're an usher, greeter, whatever, and you want to stay, you don't have to do anything. We're going to keep you on there. If you don't want to be on that team, on the sheet, put down your name and put down decline, or I forgot how she had it worded here. Basically, let us know that, hey, I don't want to be on this team. And then any team that you want to be on that you're not, sign up. That way we know. So we're going to do that. It's in the bulletin. Uh, you see the announcement of the narrow path. Uh, our next prime times at Hana Tokyo on the 15th. Make sure there's a sign-up sheet available out in the foyer for that. The FCC Men's Connect Ministry will be hosting their next gathering on March 16th in the Fellowship Hall from 8:30 to 10. Make sure you take the announcement for that. Uh, we have our annual Easter brunch coming, breakfast coming up, brunch breakfast coming up on the 31st. There's information in the sign-up sheet to come. 
OCC is looking for donations of socks, undergarments, and, and gloves. And you can bring those in. Santa on the West End is looking for some things, washcloths, toothpaste, and so on and so forth. So make sure that you take note of that. Also, I have a video this morning. It will be our memory verse video for the week. So here we go. Core verse number eight, 2 Samuel seven twelve. Our last verse was a command that God gave to Samuel. This is a promise God gives to David at the very tail end of his life. And the verse is going to break down into two parts, David, God. And each of them are going to do two things. When you can break down a verse into its logical parts, you will memorize it more quickly and remember it more easily. So here we go. When your days are fulfilled, 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 I'm like the sun setting, when your days are fulfilled and, and you lie down with your fathers, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, notice I'm, I'm, I'm adding two hands, David and his fathers, David and his fathers, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, think you got it? Try it without me. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. Those are the two things that David's going to do. His days are fulfilled, he lies down. Now's what God is going to do. When that happens, when your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. I will rise, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will raise up your offspring. So David is going down, God is raising up. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. 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 Got it. Okay. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And now there's a brief description. Who shall come from your, from your body, who shall come from your body, who shall come from your body, I will raise up your offspring after you, how shall come from, who shall come from your body, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and here's the second thing that God is going to do, I will establish his kingdom forever, I will establish his kingdom forever, I will establish his kingdom forever, so what does David do, two things, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers. What does God do? I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. There's a brief description in the middle of, of that, that seed of David. He, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Let's try it all together. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. One more time. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 2 Samuel 7.12. There you go. So get, those, get that memorized. Um, I know some people struggle with memorization. Honestly, sometimes I do because i got so much going on. 
but the way we're trying to put it together, it makes it easy. If you want to see the videos of them again, they're on our website too. So, um, on our prayer concerns, we have a lot of things we've been praying for. Our faith promise at this so far, we've had 34 pledges for $28,140, and I know we'll have some more come in throughout the next few weeks. So, thank. It's a blessing. Our missions that we support are very thankful for for your willingness to share. Please be in prayer for Lori Jacobs and her family. As I said, she lost her son who had some young, had young children, and she's back in Missouri right now. Uh, I, or she will be going back to Missouri for the funeral. I don't think she's gone back yet. Uh, keep Judy Crawford in your prayer. She's got some pneumonia. She's been in the hospital yesterday, but hopefully she'll be okay. We have a lot of other people we've been praying for with health issues. We have troops who are deployed that have ties to First Christian. <clears throat> we've been praying for our shut-ins. Also, uh, this month, our outreach that we're focusing in on is, a, is the Huachuca Hospitality House. Keep them in your prayers. And we're focusing on Operation Christmas Child. This month is the mission of our focus. So keep those organizations in your prayer. <clears throat> At this time, let's stand together. I will give you an opportunity to lift your hearts to the Lord silently, and then I'll close this with a word of prayer, and our praise team will lead us with a song out. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to communicate with you through prayer. I pray that all the prayer requests lifted up this morning, we know that you'll hear them. Help us to keep them before you. Lord, we look forward to seeing how you'll work through them. Father, I pray that as we leave this place, we leave with joy and determination and that we are just in awe of you and that we want to share the message that brought us to you with other people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. for joining us for church this morning. Have a wonderful week in the Lord, everybody.